Our lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. Would you all stand with me this morning as we read Holy Scripture together? Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. And as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived within her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord spoke through the prophet, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This morning we come to the final Sunday of Advent, leading up to the celebration of Christmas Eve. And this morning we see one of four significant angelic encounters that takes place surrounding the birth of Christ. Uh, the first angelic encounter was the angel's visit to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. If you remember that account, the angel comes to Zechariah, tells him what's going to happen, and yet Zechariah says, how can I believe you? Like, how can I trust that what you're saying is true? And it's almost kind of comical because the angel basically says, I am the angel Gabriel. Like, like, how often do you have an angel standing in front of you telling you something's going to happen? So if you remember, Zechariah was, was stricken with blindness uh, for several months leading up to the birth of John the Baptist. The next angelic encounter is the angel Gabriel visiting Mary, um, which we know well. And, and then today's encounter uh, with Joseph in the dream, the final angelic encounter leading up to the birth of Christ is with the shepherds in the field on the night of Jesus's birth. Um, Zechariah and Joseph have very different responses to the angel. Um, Mary has a very different kind of response to the angel. What's interesting, though, is that we don't get a lot of internal monologue. Um, what's, what's going on between Mary and Joseph? What's happening within their relationship? What are the conversations that they're having? What's going on inside of them? Instead, we simply have a narrator telling us what has happened. Um, so where we pick up today, Mary is betrothed to Joseph, and he has obviously at this point found out that she has pregnant. How, how did that go down? Um, how did she tell him? How did he find out? We, we don't know. Did he believe her? Did he believe her story? Um, we don't know any of these things. 
But what we do see is that he planned to quietly divorce her because he was a just man and he wanted to avoid putting her to shame. Now you may go, well, they weren't married yet, were they? They were just betrothed to each other. Why would he have to divorce her? Well, Mary and Joseph were more than just engaged at this point. In fact, engagement as we understand it today is very different from betrothal during the period of Christ. Joseph and Mary, as we saw, had come together into this betrothal period, which meant, yes, on on some level, they were engaged to be married, but it also meant that they were already in a legally binding agreement. They had already entered into this legal arrangement that happens in today's world at the actual marriage ceremony. That's when like the actual paperwork is signed, where the actual marriage covenant is signed. That's where kind of the binding legal agreement is, being, is entered into in today's world. But during the time of Christ, uh, a betrothal period would be initiated by a binding legal agreement, typically between not a man and a woman, but a man and the girl's father. Um, And most often money would be exchanged as well. There would be some kind of a dowry. There would be some kind of an exchange that took place. The betrothal itself was consecrated with its own ceremony and as we said was legally binding. Um, The betrothal period would be kind of consummated with a wedding and, and that would be more about the groom taking the wife to live with him in his home at that point in time. And that would kind of consummate and seal the deal on this whole thing. And so if the groom opted, as was the case here with Joseph, to not finalize the marriage by bringing his bride to live in his home, he would have to go through basically formal divorce proceedings to annul the betrothal. So needless to say, Joseph wasn't simply Mary's boyfriend, right? And he wasn't simply her fiance. There was something more going on here. So when the angel comes to Mary and explains what's going to take place, I don't know if we can even fathom the full weight of what was at stake for her and for her family. And also, what was at stake for Joseph in the midst of this as well? Because this whole situation had the potential to heap all kinds of condemnation and shame on both of them and their families. And and so think about this, because I think this is fascinating. The call of God had the potential to ruin Mary's life in an earthly sense, right? It had the ability to disgrace her publicly It had the ability, uh, if she was faithful, to be obedient to the call of God. It had the ability to ostracize her from her family and her community and to subject her to a life of poverty, to relegate her to a status of like whoredom in the community because of what had taken place, where no man would ever consider her as a potential bride in the future. She would be used goods it could bring extreme dishonor to her family, her community, just everybody. So, so there's, things are very tenuous because of what's happening here. And yet this is all based on the call of God and God's will for this situation. So for Mary, everything, her whole future was kind of on the line. And yet she says, when the angel visits her, she says, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. What an amazing thing to say in spite of everything that she was facing. For all she knows, she is throwing everything out the window 
to say yes. And so must we. So must we. Why is it that we perhaps assume that the call of Christ would never involve some level of social risk? Why is it that we assume that the call of Christ would not involve some level of loss or some level of leaving behind what could have been? John Stott, pastor and theologian, says this, There can be no following without a previous forsaking. To follow Christ is to renounce all lesser loyalties. In the days when he lived among men on earth, this meant a literal abandonment of home and work. Simon and Andrew left their nets and followed him. James and John left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Matthew, who heard Christ's call while he was sitting in the tax office, left everything and rose and followed him. So imagine what people had to say about those guys. Can you believe what they did to their families? Right? Can you believe they just left their dad in the boat with the business? Right? With like the family's livelihood and they're now just off following this guy around in the wilderness? But this is true of so many great people of the faith. Like, think about Noah. Think about Abraham, Moses, Joshua, on and on and on. They all abandoned themselves to the call of God. They abandoned themselves to do things that seemed ridiculous or illogical or at best improbable. They pursued these things wholeheartedly. Think of Noah building a boat in the desert, facing the ridicule of his community, his peers. What in the world is this crazy person doing? Think about Joshua leading the armies of Israel to the city of Jericho and saying, don't worry, guys, we're going to blow our horns and then everything's going to be okay. It just doesn't make sense. These guys abandoned themselves to the ridicule of men, to the potential loss of life, possessions, status, and ultimately, this is like childlike faith, right? This is just like this blind faith, this just trust that God is good and that following Him and being obedient to Him is the best thing that we could do. Sometimes when we think of blind faith, what we mean is that it's faith that goes against logic or knowledge or prudence. But true faith isn't really based on any of that stuff in a human sense, right? True faith isn't based on what is prudent to human beings or what seems logical to human beings. Faith isn't based on anything remotely human. It is based on your own understanding or your own ability. Hebrews says it's based on the conviction of things that you haven't seen. So faith is based on invisible stuff. But what other things in your life are based on invisible stuff? Where else in your life is that true? But this is the kind of invisible stuff that can make a hundred-year-old woman give birth. It's the kind of invisible stuff that can part the waters of the ocean. It can guide a rock from the sling of a scrawny boy into the forehead of a mighty warrior. It can shut the mouths of lions, and it can bring life into the womb of potentially a 14-year-old virgin. I love how Jesus says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn... 
and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you change and become like children, unless you transform and become like children and not like adults, right? Not like people who have amassed all of this human wisdom and knowledge, but unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you become like Mary, who says, I'm the servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your will. You know, one of the things that's true of most children is they, they lack foresight, right? They lack the ability to kind of see down the road and what could happen because they haven't had a life filled with success and failure, and I tried this and it didn't work, and we did that. And it, so children just assume the best in most cases. Jesus says, why can't you live that way? If you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, if you really want to follow me, you, ha you have to change. You have to take all of this stuff that you think that you've learned, kind of lay it at my feet and say, Lord, what you want, I'm going to be obedient to you, even if it doesn't make sense. Because so often in Scripture, it just simply doesn't make sense. But here's the deal. Shame is an enemy of all of this. Your fear of being shamed is potentially being used by the enemy to dissuade you from abandoning yourself to Christ. Imagine the social ramifications for Joseph of him taking a pregnant woman with this wild story to be his bride. First of all, you know people didn't believe her. Like we don't, we don't get that in here but you know people didn't believe her, right? You wouldn't have believed her. I wouldn't have believed her. Even if Joseph believed her, he knew other people wouldn't believe her. And because he was a good guy, we learned that he was concerned about the potential for Mary to be put to shame. And so he formulated this plan to deal with it. He was going to cut things off quietly, which he hoped would spare her in some way from shame. What is shame, by the way? What is it? So shame, shame isn't feeling like you've done something bad. That's guilt. Shame is feeling like you are bad. It's ontological, meaning it has to do with your very being. Not this is what I've done, but this is who I am. Shame is feeling like you're a worthless loser. And it's not something that's at all new to our culture. Um, even in colonial America, there was like this vibrant, thriving culture of shame. Benjamin Rush, one of the founding fathers, wrote in 1787, shame is universally acknowledged to be a worse punishment than death. There are a number of shame punishments that were once commonplace in America that are no longer acceptable. Uh, back in colonial America, one of the most common punishments for somebody that was um, deviant was to put them in the stocks. Like, have you seen stocks before where, you, where you, have to, you have to get your arms and your head put into this contraption that holds you there and kind of locks you in? But where was that done? It wasn't done, like, in private inside a jail cell. It was done out in the public square. So, so yes, it was uncomfortable and painful to be in the stocks, but the real punishment was that you had to be subjected to the ridicule of the community who came out to watch you 
and who came out to make fun of you and to mock you as you stood there with your arms and your head locked in the stocks. Another punishment that was used in classrooms, even up until the 1920s, was the dunce hat, like the big pointy hat. Like you see it like comically and in cartoons even today, but that was once a real thing. Like kids that misbehaved, kids that did poorly on their schoolwork, they would be subjected to the ridicule of their classmates by having to wear this hat in front of everybody. And the idea was that by being shamed publicly, that you would change your behavior or you would change the amount of work that you were putting into your schoolwork. If you've ever gotten caught passing notes in class and the teacher then made you read the note to the entire class, the intention is that you would feel shame, right? That you would feel embarrassment, right? And, and that you would change as a result. So here's the weird thing about modern culture. There is still a healthy culture of public shaming. Remember, do you remember that guy that killed Cecil the lion? You remember that? And, and just, you know, this, this rich American, I think he was a dentist, had gone to Africa on a wild game hunt and killed this lion. And it turned out it was like the pet lion of this one area in Africa, and they had named the lion, and they like loved this lion dearly. He was, his name was Cecil the lion. And so there was this massive public shame storm that erupted on social media and in newspapers and on the news. Like this guy had to like go into hiding for a little while, I think. It was craziness. Lindsay sent me an article recently that talked about the ways that smartphones are affecting shame within younger kids. Um, and, and one of the scenarios that this article gave was, so imagine you're in the fourth or fifth grade, um, or say the seventh or eighth grade, and in the lunchroom at school, you accidentally trip and you spill your lunch everywhere. Like, that would always be embarrassing, no matter what time period we're talking about, because your peers see that happen. But in today's world, more than likely somebody got it on video, and now that video of you is being shared on social media platforms, and even people who weren't in the room when it happened are having a chance to see it, and they're having a chance to comment on it on social media. And so, as a result, guess what has increased exponentially among kids of that age in recent years, suicide, right? Which seems ridiculous and extreme, and yet this is public shaming at a level that people have never experienced before, and with younger children who are not mature enough to in any way emotionally deal with the ramifications of what has happened, they have no clue what to do in the face of that kind of public shaming. So it's craziness. So that is alive and well in our culture. It still happens. But then there is also this contingency that would tell you that you should never feel shame ever. And if you ever do feel shame, it's probably because some other terrible person has laid shame on you, or the culture itself has led you to feel that way. And you have to just put that out of your mind. You can't allow anybody to ever make you feel shame in any way, shape, or form. You should never feel shame, certainly for just existing or being, right? 
That shouldn't bring shame onto you, but, but it's gone to an even deeper level than that. You shouldn't even feel shame if you've done something wrong or even if you've done something harmful in some, in some cases. But here's the deal. You aren't sinless, right? You aren't sinless. And when you encounter the Lord, your sin should cause you to feel some level of guilt and shame. Because before a holy God, you are guilty and you do have something to be ashamed of. And if you feel no guilt or shame for your sin when faced with the holiness of God, then God help you. Why would you repent if there is no sense of wrongdoing on your part? Why would you repent if you feel like other people may not like this, but they can't say anything to me? In Isaiah 6, Isaiah has this famous vision of the throne room of God. This is a chapter right before the chapter we read this morning. Here's what it says in Isaiah 6. It says, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two He covered His face. With two He covered His feet. And with two He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So when faced with a vision of the throne room of God, Isaiah is immediately filled with guilt and shame. Woe is me, for I am a person of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I am ruined. But don't miss this. Here's what happens immediately after he says that. Verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. So here's the point. Don't miss this. You will never... You will never, you will never truly step into what God has for you unless you accept the fact that He has borne your guilt and your shame on the cross. That because of Christ, even though you are guilty and even though you have things to be ashamed of, those things no longer have to be a part of your reality. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, 
all things have become new. For some of you, your fear of being shamed or ostracized or the shame that you carry from your past and things that have happened before or things that you have done before, it's quite possible that those things are preventing you from truly stepping out in faith and doing what the Lord has called you to do. But when you recognize what God has done for us through Christ, that is the coal, if you will, that like cleanses your life, that changes you, right? Was Isaiah guilty of being a man of unclean lips, living amongst the people of unclean lips? Absolutely. And not because of anything he did or any merit of his own, the angel touches him with the coal and says, behold, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. He didn't do that. He didn't even ask for it, right? But then once that has happened, even though your sins were scarlet, they've now been white as snow, once that happens, when you get that, No matter what the Lord asks, because of what He has done for you, the response is, yeah, here I am. Send me, right? Because my guilt has been taken away. My shame has been taken away. And it's been laid on Christ. He has borne it on the cross. And so, Lord, whatever you want, no matter how impractical or illogical, no matter what the seeming like human repercussions might be, or no matter what the social repercussions might be, yes, yes. You know, it's so amazing when you consider the things that guys like Isaiah were called to do. It's amazing that so many of us can't speak up about Christ simply because we feel like we might deal with some social ramifications. If we really consider the fact that our guilt has been taken away and that our shame has been taken away and that our sins have been made white as snow, how could we not say yes in obedience to Christ? Let me close with this quote from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis says, the principle runs through all of life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find Him and with Him everything else thrown in. Let us pray. Father, may we be quick to have eyes to see what Christ has done for us this morning. Even though we talk about it all the time, even though hopefully it is central to who we are as a church, we forget it, we lose sight of it. Even from minute to minute, 
This morning, Father, we just give you praise and glory for the fact that you have taken our sin away. God, that you've taken our guilt and our shame. You have borne it on the cross. You have atoned for our sins. And may our response to you be, here I am. No matter what you want, no matter what you ask, no matter what you command, whether it's practical or impractical or logical or illogical, God, that we would be quick to follow you, to not worry about the ramifications within our social circles or within our culture, but Father, that we would only be concerned about being obedient to you, even if it doesn't make sense to other people. What Noah did made no sense to other people. Father, help us this morning to be obedient to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.